0: Well, this morning I want to engage in a little bit of time travel with you. I want you to think back of your fondest memory at church, your fondest memory at church. Maybe it was a missions trip. Some of my fondest memories have been times when we've uh, shared bunks together in a foreign country. Uh, Some of my fondest memories, uh, uh, maybe like yours, have to do with the church expansion project. It was 20 years ago, around this time, that some of you may remember we broke ground on this particular building. Maybe that's one of your fondest memories. Maybe one of your fondest memories is a church uh, musical or church cantata. I don't think we even use that word anymore. Uh, This stage used to be filled, there were risers that started back here that went all the way to the ceiling, and some of my favorite memories, some of my best friends are people that I stood beside in the choir for years and years. Maybe uh, your favorite memory uh, was one of the fellowship meals that you participated in. As a kid growing up, I remember in church, like some of the greatest meals ever, like the dessert table at the churchwide potluck was just uh, absolutely phenomenal, Maybe it was a small group or a Sunday school class where people in your group became uh, less of friends and more like family. Maybe for you as a series of revival meetings or a Bible study that changed your life. Whatever it is this morning, I, I'm not Nostradamus, uh, but I'm, uh, pretty, uh, I'm pretty confident I can make this prediction that none of your fondest memories this morning uh, center around this thought. Uh, of Somebody that said, my fondest memory of church is connected to every week when we would take up the offering. Right? Who says that? Like, none of your memories uh, have, probably have anything to do with that moment in church when we take up the offering. Well, despite the fact that that was not probably on anybody's list, there's no denying that Scripture teaches us that a changed heart will produce a generous heart. And this morning, we're going to talk about the dreaded subject of giving, And this morning, we're going to teach on giving for one simple reason. It's because it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And so you can turn there with me this morning. We've been studying through 2 Corinthians. And the reason that we're here today is because this is just where it falls on the calendar. Now, I will admit to you, uh, at the beginning of the year, the pastors all sit down with a giant whiteboard. We write out all the dates, and we literally schedule out the entire year of what we're going to teach on and so we scheduled out the book of Second Corinthians and we uh, chunked it out by a chapter and none of us were uh, on this whiteboard, uh, static. We weren't really uh, figuring out or uh, connecting the idea that this was the week after Easter. And so our fear this week, this Monday, as we looked at this, we thought, oh no, well, what if a guest came last week and now you came back, you returned this week to see what it's all about and here we are teaching about money. So I, I promise you, the only reason we're doing it is because we're in chapter 9. Last time that we were together the week before Easter in 2 Corinthians, it was in chapter we were in chapter 8. The week before that, we were in chapter 7. You can probably guess what we're going to teach on next week. Next week we're going to teach on chapter 10. And so we're going to uh, spend our time this morning focusing on this gift and what uh, radical generosity looks like that should flow out of a heart that's been radically transformed by Jesus. And this morning we're going to focus on chapter 9, specifically verses 9 through 13. But before we do so, we want to spend a little bit of time this morning uh, to teach a little more broadly on the subject of giving. Now, admittedly, if a pastor at a church is going to teach a standalone passage or a standalone message, rather, on giving, they often come to this passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, and that's appropriate to do, but we want to look at it within the context of the entire, uh, entire ch- uh, book that we're, we've been studying. But we also want to step back and look at some other places, uh, some foundational places that kind of kind of build this, uh, set the stage this morning uh, for what we're going to teach about. And so we want to answer some of these questions, these commonly asked questions with regard to giving. Uh, Oftentimes, Christians or non-Christians alike will ask some of these questions. What what does the Bible teach about giving? They'll ask this question about tithing. Tithing is typically the word. It's the Christian word or the church word associated with giving. People will ask, uh, what what does tithing really mean? Does tithing really equal 10%? Uh, Aren't we part of the new covenant of grace? Are we really still under the law? Uh, Wasn't tithing in the Old Testament? Is Is it really in the New Testament? And on and on, all of these questions are asked this week, uh, I ventured into the incredibly discouraging world of Christian Twitter, and that's one of the trending uh, topics right now, is the tithe really a New Testament thing? And so let's do a quick Bible overview on giving and answer some of these questions. Again, the most well-known word as it relates to giving is, in fact, tithing. And so let's start off with the Old Testament, because that's where we first encounter the concept of a tithe. Now the Old Testament, that's typically the, uh, we think of the front half of the Bible, that's God's old covenant, it's the covenant with his people of Israel. And so what do we see about the tithe? The word tithe in the Old Testament comes from a Hebrew word that literally means 10%. Now, here's what's fascinating. Uh, The Israelites' forefathers had long practiced the tradition of giving 10%, according to Genesis chapter 14, where we see Melchizedek and Abraham talking about a tithe. Uh, Later in Genesis chapter 28, we see them tithing long before it was ever written into law, long before Moses ever uh, came down off the mountain with the law in Leviticus chapter 27. And so for all the people that argue that tithe was simply part of the Mosaic law, we're no longer bound by that law, we now live under grace, I want to remind you this morning that people were tithing long before the, law was ever, uh, long before the tithe was ever codified into law. In fact, later when it was actually written down, when it was actually uh, written down for Moses, uh, there were actually several offerings that were part of uh, the Israel's daily uh, worship or uh, annual worship. And, and so if you added all of those offerings together, there was not only uh, the tithe, there were additional offerings, there was also a temple tax uh, that you had to give. And so all of that added up to about 25% of one's income. I heard a pastor recently say, I've never been more thankful to live under the new covenant of grace, amen? And so that's what, uh, kind of what we see in the Old Testament. Let's move to the New Testament, the New Testament or the new covenant of grace. We believe that that's the covenant that we are now living under. And so here's the big gotcha question that people with a little bit of Bible knowledge like to ask their pastor. They like to ask this, where in the New Testament Does it say that a Christian has to tithe or give 10%? And here's what we as pastors have to be honest about. There's not a verse in the New Testament that commands us to tithe. Now, for some of you, like, you're incredibly uh, excited over that. Like, you've been looking for a loophole for years, right? And finally, we found it. I heard the pastor say, you don't have, there's not a verse that says you have to tithe. Now, some of you are probably a little angry about this, right? Because you've been duped for all these years. And you're like, what? I find this out at this point in my life. There's not actually a verse that says that. I look out and I see some people on our administration team, our, our finance team, and you're a little nervous right now, right? Because you're the ones that pour over the offering reports every single week. But listen, if we're going to take a strong stand about not skipping tough truths of the Bible, then we have to take an equally strong stand that says we don't add to the Bible either. Now, what I'm not saying this morning is that the issue is never mentioned in the New Testament. In fact, it is all throughout the New Testament. We we first encounter uh, this idea about tithing in in, in the parable of uh, Luke chapter 18, where the Pharisees are talking about tithing. We see it mentioned later in Hebrews chapter 7, the author talks about uh, the tithe. To be honest with you, these probably aren't great proof texts, Uh, when it comes to speaking about tithe, because when you dig down into them, uh, both of them are really set in the Old Testament context. But then there's Jesus. And Jesus actually talks about the tithe. These words uh, came right out of his own mouth. There's a parallel gospel account um, in in Luke chapter 11. Let me bring you to that that recording of this uh, parallel account. And Jesus says this. He says, but woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe, but you pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others, just tithing, undone. And so, just to be clear here, Jesus is not saying to give up tithing so that you can focus on justice, so that you can focus on the telling the world about Jesus. He's saying it's not either or, it's both and. You know, when I. Um, first uh, applied to seminary. And I remember getting that uh, acceptance letter back. And when I got that letter back, it said, welcome to our premier writing program of the Theological Studies Department. And I was like, what? I didn't sign up for a writing program. I didn't know that was part. I thought I was going to watch some videos and take some online tests. And turns out I was completely wrong about what online seminary looked like. But there was a lot of writing Pastor Brad tells a similar story when he took, uh, when he went through seminary at Liberty University, and uh, one of his professors used to tell him, he said, listen, when you write a paper, I want you to have seven sources, because I don't care what you think, I want to know what the experts in the field have to say. And so this morning, we've compiled some experts in the field, so it's not just yours truly that you're listening to this morning. Listen to some other these pastors, these pastors that we respect, that we follow, and that we ourselves uh, learn under. Uh, the first one, author and mass, uh, pastor Matt Chandler, uh, pastor in Texas, he says, the New Testament never commands the tithe, but the parallel gospel accounts assume it. Another one of our favorites that we quote often is uh, retired pastor, John Piper. He says this, he says, Jesus endorsed tithing, yet one might say that he's only talking to Jews in essentially an Old Testament setting. Maybe so, uh, but there is another pointer that the principle was preserved in the early church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, this would have been Paul's uh, original letter to the church at Corinth, the church that we're studying, Paul says this, he says, do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? In other words, Pastor Piper reminds us uh, that the church in the uh, Old Testament, the economy of the church was that the Levites, those were the priests, that the Levites who worked in the temple lived off the tithes that were brought to the temple. And then Paul says this in verse 14, so also the Lord directed those who proclaimed the gospel to get their living from the gospel. So, Pastor John Piper makes the following observation in light of those verses. He says, The least that Paul is saying is that those who spend their lives in the service of the Word of God should be supported by the rest of Christians. But since he draws his attention to the way it was done in the Old Testament as the model, it seems likely that tithing would have been the early Christian mandate, or excuse me, the early Christian guideline, if not the mandate. Another pastor that I, uh, one of my favorite follows on on Twitter, he's retired from, pastor from New York City, Tim Keller, he says, Jesus points to the Pharisees' faithful tithing that we just read about in Luke and says, they nonetheless neglect justice and the love of God. Then he, uh, he then says that they indeed should do the former things, tithing, but not neglect the latter. Jesus seems to assume that tithing was the standard practice. And so we share all of these things this morning, all of these other pastors uh, that have studied the Word, all of these other Bible scholars that have spent uh, their lives studying God's Word, and, and they, they, they uh, build the case that tithing was actually the assumed practice in the New Testament. Now, we would also agree that it's not quite as clear as the pastor that maybe you've heard that says you have to tithe to the church. Now, full disclosure this morning, um, my wife and I do not tithe if you're stuck on the tithe being, the standard of a tithe being 10%. And here's why we don't tithe. Uh, I did the math last Thursday. We actually give a little over 13% of our gross income to the Lord's work. That's the uh, testimony of Pastor Brad and his family as well. And we don't stand up in front of you this morning uh, to brag about that, to get any attaboys, to pat pat us on the back. We say that to model for you what it looks like. We we, we tell you that because this is something that we don't want from you. It's something that we want for you. And so our family has decided to uh, serve the Lord in this capacity. And so every year, we sit down at the beginning of the year and look for ways that we can even increase That percentage, can we make it 14, 15 percent? Lord willing, in two years when our youngest is finally done with college, we'll be able to raise that number to 15, 16, uh, maybe even 17 or 18 percent. A while back, I came across this statement by Pastor Tim Keller. Uh, Again, I I quoted him earlier. He said this. He said, if we're going to think about our relationship to the Old Testament tithe, I like to do it like this. Surely, we are more blessed than the Old Testament saints. That's a fact. The Old Testament saints, the word Jesus is never mentioned in Scripture. They just knew of this Messiah that was coming someday. But now we can look backwards, see the work that Jesus has done on our behalf. We see the evidence of an empty tomb. We're exponentially more blessed to live under this covenant versus the Old Testament covenant and the Old Testament saints. And so Tim Keller says, Why then would we assume that we'd be expected to be less generous? In other words, I'm not going to let, I'm I'm not going to be outgiven by some Old Testament legalistic Jew when I've experienced the lavish grace given to me by Jesus under the new covenant. Amen? One of my favorite modern day Bible scholars is D.A. Carson. I have, uh, he has a study Bible, the NIV study Bible. We use it often in our prep for these messages and I came across this quote this week. He said, the question is not, what's the correct interpretation so that I can do whatever required of me to get on with my life? In other words, it's not like, hey, tell me the exact percentage. Some of you this morning would like to know, like, what is the exact percentage? I'll, spread it, I'll put it into my little spreadsheet. I'll let it spit out the number. I'll write the check for that, and I'll be done with it, and I'll get on with my life. D.A. Carson says, that's not the question that we should be asking The question we should be asking is, how can I manage my affairs so that I can give more to the Lord's work? Uh, What about increasing that to 20%? Well, why not 30%? So before we even get into the text this morning, let's put the, uh, the question to rest that asks, do I have to tithe? Here's the answer. Under the new covenant, you don't have to do anything to be approved by God. You hear me? You don't have to do anything to be approved by God because Jesus has already com- accomplished that on your behalf. There's nothing that you can do uh, to increase your standing before God. Jesus has already done it all for you. You see, the entire conversation when it comes to giving uh, money. When it comes to generosity, it needs to move away from covenants, old covenant, new covenant, uh, away from percentages, and it needs to move towards this idea that a generous heart that's been radically transformed by the gospel will show itself, will make itself known through radical generosity. We say this about every area of our lives, that Jesus didn't come uh, just to reorder the habits of our lives. He didn't uh, come to make the, uh, uh, the good habits better and move them up the list and take the bad habits and move them down on the list. Jesus came to transform our hearts. And so it's our desire as pastors uh, that the hearts of our people would be totally abandoned when it comes to generosity, that we'd move away from these silly debates of percentages, covenants, and move towards a heart that says, God, it's all yours to begin with. How much would you allow me to keep? So all of that this morning is just the pre-sermon, okay? That was all for free. None of that counts. We're going to reset the timer on the back wall, and uh, we're going to go from here, okay? And so uh, I kid you just a little bit. Let's quickly jump now into the text this morning. Uh, <laughs> Let not your hearts be troubled. That's what Brad tells you. Uh, we are literally halfway through our notes, so we're halfway through our time this morning. But let's go ahead and pick up now in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and i read verses 6 through 13. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. For the sake of time this morning, we're going to move through this passage pretty quickly. Uh, But I don't want to move so quickly uh, that that we fail to see uh, the context, we fail to see the movement as it moves through This chapter, and so the last two weeks, chapter eight and nine, or at least uh, the week before Easter, uh, when we were uh, on Palm Sunday, studied studied chapter eight, and now verse or or chapter nine. uh, These chapters teach on generosity, specifically uh, giving, but they're preceded by chapter seven. And do you remember what chapter seven was about? Chapter seven was about genuine repentance. And Paul gave the distinction how a heart that's genuinely repentant will have fruits of repentance versus the person uh, that was just sorry about being caught. But now, the very first subject that he deals with after teaching about repentance, after talking about the fruits of repentance that will overflow out of our lives, the very first subject that Paul deals with is this uh, subject of generosity in chapters 8 and 9. So here's what we can conclude when we read this chapter in the context of everything else that we've been studying so far, it's this. That a heart that has been truly changed by Christ will be marked by radical generosity. This week as I was doing my uh, the daily quiet time, uh, I have a life application study Bible and I looked down at the notes and, and this is just fantastic. I wanna share it with you. Uh, the notes for this section in my Bible said, believers are called to be generous because of the example of the Lord of life. Let's <laughs> Listen to this. A stingy Christian should be an extinct species. Isn't that good? A stingy Christian should be an extinct species. Generosity proves that a person's heart has been cleansed of self-interest and filled with the servant spirit of Jesus himself. The theme of this entire book has been the spirit yielded, the spirit-controlled, the the, the spirit-filled life. And when the spirit comes into our lives, when we give uh, the Holy Spirit free reign of our lives, it pushes the stinginess that we were once marked by as unbelievers, it pushes that out of our lives. And so as pastors, we're not worried about what percentage people are giving. We're worried about this idea that someone would claim to know Jesus but not have the fruit in their life of a generous life. And so that's where we want to spend the rest of our time this morning. Three biblical truths about generosity that we saw in these verses that we just read. And the first biblical truth is this in verse six you cannot outgive God. You cannot outgive God. You know, there's this uh, principle that's been accepted in culture, this phrase that we use often over and over, and people don't even realize. That it actually comes from the Bible. And it's this principle of reaping and sowing. Now, this is not the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel that says that God's blessing comes to you in the form of monetary or financial success. And that financial success in your life is evidence that God is working inside your life. The problem with the prosperity gospel is that generally speaking doesn't work in other countries around the world. It doesn't work in third world countries. It really only works here in, in the United States, where we 're in incredibly wealthy compared to the rest of the world, and so honestly the, the prosperity gospel that says uh, god 's uh, blessing of finances on your life are, are proof or evidence that god 's at work within you, not necessarily true. The first century church that Paul's writing this letter to were incredibly poor, and yet God used them to change the world. And so the prosperity gospel they, they wants to monetary God's monetize god's blessing in the form of finances, but in reality, we don't get to determine that. We don't get to determine what God's blessings look like back to us. We only get to position ourselves so that we're in the right place to be blessed. And that's what is happening in verse six. Look at it again. The point is this, Paul says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Notice in this passage, it's not talking about um, how much to give. It, it, it's, uh, or excuse me, it's not talking about not giving. It's not talking, it's not contrasting not giving versus giving. It's talking about how much do we give? And, and so it's not the choice, like are you gonna decide to uh, give this week and, and not this week? No, no, it's how, how much of your uh, income, how much of your, your life is gonna spill out of your heart in, in a blessing to others and a blessing to God's work. And so you can give sparingly, and then you'll reap God's blessing sparingly, or you can give bountifully and reap God's blessing bountifully. Again, listen to Jesus' own words when it comes to reaping and sowing. In Luke chapter six, verse 38, he said, give, and it will be given to you. And then this wonderful sentence, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For the measure with which you give will be the same measure that's given back to you. If you sow sparingly, you will reap God's blessings sparingly. If you give generously, if you give bountifully, then He will bless you bountifully. This idea was uh, repeated back in the Old Testament in Proverbs chapter three, verses nine and ten. It said, "Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the firstfruits of all your produce." The first fruits were the, its like the cream of the crop. It was the best stuff. Like you picked the ripest, the the best stuff first. And and that's what King Solomon said. That's what we're to give to God. We give out of the abundance. We give of the best things that he has already given us. And then it says, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. All of these verses, verse 6 Jesus' words in Luke and again in Proverbs, all of these verses teach the same thing. You cannot outgive God. You can shovel as much as you want into the kingdom of God, but God always has a bigger shovel every time. And his blessings will be uh, given back to us. They're going to far exceed the material. It's going to far exceed uh, finances. It's going to bless you in every way is what it says. While God may not choose to bless you with financial gain as the prosperity gospel teaches... He does promise to pour out his blessing on those who uh, uh, sow bountifully. So you cannot outgive God. Here's the second thing, the second truth we want you to see in verse 7 it's this stop giving if you don't want to give. Stop giving if you don't want to give. Now, you've probably never heard a pastor say that before, and we really looked at each other. Are we really going to say that this week? Uh, But we really are going to say that because we think that's what chapter or verse 7 is teaching. Stop giving if you don't want to give. Look at verse 7 again. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. What Paul's saying is that every Christian has a personal responsibility to give, whether they're rich, whether they're poor, even if they're in debt. Verse 7 starts out with this uh, idea of affirming the duty of Christian giving. Each one must give. And then the rest of the verse emphasizes the, the practice of Christian generosity without really talking about how much the gift should be. Again, it's not about percentages, It's about heart's affections. And so Paul says we should give intentionally. He says we should give willfully, uh, willingly, willfully, and joyfully. All of that here in verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. That word decided right there, it's the only place in the entire New Testament that that word is used. And it literally means exactly what you would think it means. It means to choose beforehand it's not a in the moment uh decision it's something that you planned out intentionally ahead of time and so what this says is that your giving should be intentional it should be pre-planned that we don't give as an emotional response to guilt how many of us have been a part of a church in fact that's why we hate sermons on giving because they feel so uh, guilt-driven that not at all paul says it should you should never give as an emotional response to guilt You should instead choose to do so beforehand. Something else I want you to see that's significant here in the original language. uh, Verse 7 emphasizes this importance of of giving willingly. And then Paul follows that with two examples, uh, two negative phrases that would be kind of directly the opposite of a willing spirit. Each person must give as he has decided in his heart. Look at the first one, not reluctantly. Paul says, do not give reluctantly. God doesn't want you to give with, uh, with, with uh, reluctance, with resistance, with resentment. Uh, that, that's why we said earlier, if you're giving 10% and you're not happy about it, if you're giving 10% and uh, it's with an angry attitude, if you give it because it's just a feeling of duty and uh, it's not uh, uh, giving from joy that's overflowing out of your heart, then we believe that you should stop giving. Now, quick little note here, full disclosure, on Monday morning, um, our count team does not have the ability uh, to look and to measure your, uh, your amount of reluctance that you gave a gift with, right? So if you put it in the plate, we are in fact going to cash that check and we're going to take it to the bank. But the fact of the matter is the Lord is not pleased by your gift if you're doing it with that type of heart, And so an act of giving is to be an overflow of the heart, and no amount of giving, even if it's a million-dollar check, if it's done with resistance, with resentment, with reluctance, then it does not please the Lord. I told you there were two negative phrases. The second one is this, each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. I love going back and studying the original language of these words because it just it paints such beautiful word pictures. The word picture in the original language is being forced to do something because you're in a headlock. Like the only reason that you're doing it is because someone is making you do this. And so as we said at the beginning of this message, we're not under the law. We're no longer forced to give. We're under grace. And that grace then should transform our hearts into becoming cheerful or, or joyful giving and if you're not giving joyfully then we would encourage you to step back and stop giving because your gift is not honoring the Lord and then Paul ends with this beautiful phrase for God loves a cheerful giver again if we go back in the original language it's such a, a beautiful word there uh, it's the word that we get the English word hilarious from literally what this is saying is that we should give hilariously that giving should be fun, that it should bring us great joy, not great resentment. Uh, 20 years ago, when we moved in this building, the the habit of the church at that time um, was that when we took up the offering, the pastor would say, now we get to take up the Lord's tithes and offerings, and everybody would clap. It was our way of expressing the fact that we want to be cheerful and joyful givers. uh, Giving should be great fun. One of the favorite things I read this week was by author Eugene Peterson, and he said, "The heart regulates the hands." Okay, we teach that in every area of our lives that what goes on, what comes out of our mouth, what happens with our hands, uh, really starts in our heart. The heart regulates the hands, but the hands reveal the heart. And so, the question in the text this morning is, "What is your giving, or the way, the attitude with which you give? What does that say about your heart?" Here's the third truth that we want you to see this morning and then we'll, uh, we're almost done. Third truth this morning is that God blesses us for a purpose. God blesses us for a purpose. Uh, years ago, I read this book. I brought it with me this morning. It's called The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. It's a fantastic little book. It should be required reading for anybody that wants to live generously. In fact, I have a whole stack of these on my desk. If you email me this week, you can find me on the website. Uh, email me and I will get you a free copy of this book. It's an easy read. It's a fascinating read. He tells lots of stories. It doesn't have any pictures in it, Bob, uh, but there are lots of, uh, lots of stories in here that will captivate your attention. And, and I, I read this, uh, one of his treasure principles, and treasure principle number six is this, that God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. like That was an ouch moment when I reread that this week. It was a little bit of a gut punch, I'm not gonna lie. Because what happens, maybe you're like me, come down to the end of the year, maybe you're fortunate enough to get a a Christmas bonus or you, you, you get a little extra money at the end of the year and what's the first thing that I think about, like, what can I buy? What can I do with this? What experience can our family have now that we have a little bit of this extra money? Once you see the progression that's taking place in verses 6, 7, and 8, verse 6 says you cannot outgive God. And so verse 7 says, so therefore give generously with a joyful heart. Uh, The way in which we give is just as important as giving. And then in verse 8, Paul tells us what this will position us to do or really what this will position us uh, to be a part of. Look at verse 8, it's a cause and effect statement, okay? And God is able to make all grace abound in you. So we have verse 6 and verse 7. And and now because of those things, God's able to make all grace abound in you. Because of your repentant heart, because of the fruits of repentance that are on display in your life, God's grace will abound with you so that, cause and effect, having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. According to verse 8, the effect of sowing generously with a joyful heart is that we will be well-resourced for every good work. Uh, Not just to uh, be there and and be part of it, to participate, to uh, uh, underwrite, really is the language there, that we'll be able to underwrite every good work that we wish to be a part of. In other words, God blesses us so that we're in a position to bless others. One of my favorite illustrations of this is uh, maybe you're familiar with uh, a name, Pastor Rick Warren. Uh, He's a retired pastor, but he started uh, a church from scratch. It grew to uh, hundreds of thousands of people in in California, and he retired recently. And uh, about 20 years ago, he wrote a book that you may be familiar with. It's called The Purpose Driven Life, incredibly successful. And he's made a a killing on it. I mean, he's made so much money over the years of selling uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of copies of that book. And shortly after uh, he wrote that book, he began to realize the incredible responsibility that he had uh, with the blessing, the financial uh, resources that they now had, the things that they could do. And so he stopped taking a salary from his church. Literally for the last 20 years, he has not received a salary and he practices, uh, he and his wife practice what you would call a reverse tithe. They actually give 90% of it away and they keep 10% for, 10 for themselves to live on. In fact, Pastor Brad was just telling me this morning as we were sharing this illustration with each other, he said, yeah, I actually know somebody that knows him and recently said, Pastor Warren, I'm so encouraged by your testimony of this. And Pastor Warren said, oh man, I, I think if, if we manage things right, we can grow that percentage over the next couple of years to 91% or 92% because he recognizes that God has blessed him in such a way that he now has the ability to be part of blessing others and to literally take the gospel to places that it's never reached. Hear me clearly this morning, there is nothing wrong with having excess money uh, God has blessed us with things and uh, th- those are good things. Every gift from, uh, that we have, every good gift that we have comes from the Father of lights and so that is a good thing in your life but we have to understand that its sole purpose is not to raise your standard of living. In fact, Paul reiterates this again. Verse 11, he says, you'll be enriched in every way. Why? So that you can be generous in every way. God blesses us Not to raise our standard of living, but to raise our standard of giving. I read this incredible stat this week uh, that of Americans uh, earning over $240,000 a year, that something like 65, I don't remember the exact number, maybe it was 68% of Americans making over $240,000 a year live paycheck to paycheck. Because there is this idea that has pervaded, uh, that is an invaded, really American culture that says, uh, "The more I get, the better I can live." And so the gospel uh, really paints a different picture this morning. Well, as we wrap all of this up today, uh, we recognize that application is the dessert of a good sermon. And so, we don't want to be all meat and potatoes this morning. We want to walk out of here with a little bit of a sweet tooth and let's look at some uh, dessert, some application. Let's look at some principles real quickly. We'll go through these pretty quickly. We're out of time. Uh, But I want you to hear these truths, ways that you can apply this to your life. The first is this make sure that God's priority is your priority. Make sure that God's priority is your priority. Listen, the local church is the primary source of teaching, so our family believes deeply in the fact that the church then should be the primary recipient of our kingdom gifts. Of that 13 or so percent that I told you that our family gives, approximately 11% of it goes right here to LHC because for 20 years we've been fed here at this church, and so uh, for us, uh, we wanna invest all of our resources, as many as the majority of our resources into the place that we're being fed. So make sure that God's priority is your priority. And then the second one is this. uh, Practice progressive sanctification when it comes to living generously. I I think we can all agree this morning that the Bible paints a very clear picture on what it means to live generously. Uh, But the the way that we do that is progressively through small steps. Uh, We've studied this in every other spiritual discipline. If you were to want to memorize Scripture uh, I, I've been trying over the, next, uh, the last year and over the next couple years, I wanna memorize the entire book of Colossians. But it would be foolish for you if you don't have a system down, if you don't have a routine of doing that, for you to say, hey, Chris, I'm gonna join you and this year I'm gonna memorize the book of Colossians. I would say start where you're at and work from there. Same is true of our prayer life. If, you've not, if you don't have a system to pray, we don't suggest that you tomorrow uh, wake up at 5.30 and say, I'm gonna pray for two hours. You're going to fail. And so start where you're at. If you're not a consistent giver, uh, work to become a consistent giver work to plan ahead in your giving. If you are a consistent giver, giver, then seek the percentage that you think would please the Lord to where your heart's desire, it shows that your heart's desire is total abandonment to the work of Jesus Christ. If you are a tither right now, work to be a radical, uh, radical giver, radical generosity. And then finally this this morning, give your heart to Jesus first. The Bible teaches that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That means, think about this, he doesn't need your money. In fact, we just studied that he doesn't even want your money if it's given with the wrong attitude. But what he does desperately want is your heart. That's why he modeled this in the life of Jesus, his son. Uh, The most famous verse in all of the Bible, probably one that almost all of us could quote, for God so loved the world that he gave. He gave Jesus who was rich and Jesus stepped out of the richness of heaven and became poor so that we who are poor could become spiritually rich. And so I think the text this morning is begging us, it's challenging us to become spiritually rich by giving your heart to Jesus. Won't you give your heart to Jesus today? I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads for the next few moments we're just going to quickly walk through what it means to give your heart to jesus for some of you the place to start you've never given any part of your life or your heart to jesus and so this morning i want to walk you through what that means it means that when we compare our life to jesus that we realize that we don't live up we cannot live up to his standard of holiness but jesus already did that on our behalf So the Bible says that we give our life to Jesus by repenting and believing, by uh, repenting a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of direction, and believe that Jesus is who he said he was, that that he did what he came to do. And if you do that, the Bible says that you will become a Christ follower, that Jesus will literally come into your life, and the spirit of Jesus will take over your life. For others of you this morning, you've given your heart to Jesus, but maybe not all of your heart to Jesus. Sometimes when it comes to our finances, we think our faith and our finances are are two separate things. And they're not. In fact, our finances just reveal what's going on in our hearts. And so this morning for you, it might be to pray and ask God to take over lordship of every area of your life, including your finances, to once and forever... Give Jesus full reign of every aspect of your life. Our Heavenly Father, this morning, I pray for those that have yet to receive Jesus. I pray that you would draw them to yourself this morning, that the words of the gospel this morning uh, would alert their minds to their need for a Savior. That, the God, that they would come to the place, the recognition that there is nothing that they can do to improve their standing before you outside of what Jesus has already done on their behalf. And so I pray that they would Repent and believe this morning. God, for those of us that still practice the art of stinginess, I pray that today we would give the Spirit full reign of that area of our hearts and that from this moment forward we would begin to live generously. That God, we would think back to the the grace that you have lavished on us and then a response to that would be to give. God, help us to become even more than ever a people that are known for radical generosity. And God, through those resources that we give back to you, I pray that you would use them to take the gospel far and wide. And that people would come to Jesus, that they would recognize that something unique is taking place within this church. And that God, as a result, they would give their life to Jesus as well. God, thank you for your love. Thank you for sending us Jesus. Thank you for that beautiful verse, for God so loved the world that he gave. Thank you for that promise. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.